All right, kindergarten through second grade can be dismissed at this time. Uh, hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. We're glad you're here with us this morning. We are uh, doing a sermon series on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. And for those of you who have been with us, uh, there may be some of you are kind of thinking, have we really talked about the Holy Spirit that much, actually? Well, in, in some way, that's a good thing. And that's what the Holy Spirit would have. He would have us talk more about Christ and our need for him than about him. Now, having said that, that is part of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, right? There's something pedagogical about us not overemphasizing him as uh, uh, the part of the Trinity that is being exalted in this case. It's not that we ignore his work in, in our lives, but when we talk more about him and Christ doesn't come up, that's usually a pretty good indicator that we may not be talking about the actual biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, having said all that, uh, yet again this morning, you're going to see is that the Holy Spirit's going to come up, but it's really going to be a whole lot more about Christ um, as, as it has been thus far. So having said that, uh, let me uh, just start with a question that is pertinent to what we're going to be talking about here this morning. And it's, it's kind of a tough question uh, in, in one sense and could cause you to lose the narrative for a bit. So uh, do give it a, a slight bit of thought, but then maybe come back to it uh, later this Lord's Day Sabbath. But what makes you feel most alive? What is it that makes you feel most alive? Now, that's a tough question because uh, we could, we, it sounds like, are we shifting YOLO theology here? Or, uh, or some other sort of hedonistic theology? Well, I don't think it's a bad question. I think it's, it's, it's badly framed oftentimes because oftentimes we use that question to dictate whether or not something is good or true or valuable to us, don't we? Well, it made me feel most alive, therefore it must be good for me. It actually, it was, the, it was this, the moment that I felt most alive, the, this city that I was in, this circumstance that I was in, this thing that I was doing, I felt most alive. It's interesting, that same language, if any of you have seen the movie uh, Beautiful Boy or read the book Beautiful Boy or read the companion book Tweak, uh, when did he feel most alive? When he was on methamphetamine, high as a kite. Now, what was troublesome is that was kind of a, an early going thing. It didn't stay that way. Progressively, life was drained from him. But in the beginning, it's, it's when, he, when he took methamphetamine, he said, I finally felt normal. It was the first time I was comfortable in my own skin. One, is that bad? Yeah, if it's going to kill you ultimately. Yes, if when it says, follow after me, it means that you follow after him to the banquet in the grave instead of the marriage supper of the Lamb. So it's a bad question if it's not framed by that which most exalts Christ. Well, same thing with the Holy Spirit. If we frame the question as, well, the, the, what, what's, what's most evidence of the Spirit's working? Well, these kind of uh, palpable things, these sort of other things that are uh, really just our emotions, purely, and not necessarily asking the question, well, wait, 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 did this event, did this circumstance, did this situation actually exalt the person and work of Christ and point to him? Does it actually uh, point us to what we need the most, which is redemption in Christ? You, you do know that there is a sin that is greater than all others. 
What is it? Unbelief. Unbelief leads to all the other ones. Notice, it's not that it gets hammered away at that there are particular sins because all other particular sins tend to be behavioral and would indicate that your salvation can come through good behavior. Unbelief is radically different than them all, isn't it? That is why you have heard me say, and you'll hear me continue to say, that the greatest miracle you will ever witness in your life is the turning of someone's heart from stone to flesh. For them to move from pride to humility in Christ alone. And yet, here's what's interesting. And I, I, I talked about this at the office the other day. I said, look, if I, if I were to break out speaking in tongues right now, uh, in a language that y'all know I don't know, like I just started talking Ugaritic, y'all would tell everybody you know. For various reasons. But, but, my moments of repentance, the, the, the moments where I, I back away from the sword I have drawn and resheath it and hold my hands up in submission to the will of God, that ain't all that cool. Can you snap your fingers and make flames kind of do that? Because I'm going to tell people about that. If I were to raise someone from the dead this morning on this stage, Y'all, th this would be the service y'all would remember above all others. Y'all would never forget it, wouldn't you? And you say, well, yeah, for good reason. You raised a person from the dead on the stage, especially with all that fur and glitter. It's, yeah, it's memorable. But, but, the preaching of the word, the, the, the word having an impact on us, the word causing us to say, no, as a matter of fact, I think I am uh, wrong about that, or I need to submit more to Christ, we, we won't say so much about that, unfortunately. I don't think. Not comparatively. So this is part of the project of this sermon series, is to get us to see that we aren't actually calling the thing that is most miraculous, miraculous. And we are not talking about the redemption of those into eternal life as the greatest miracle of all. Now, there's other things that are great. Like, if you can raise people from the dead, yeah, I'll talk about it. But, but if it doesn't exalt Christ, which, by the way, people who don't exalt Christ do have the power to do some pretty amazing things to confuse us. That's biblical. We need to be careful of these things, correct? And so, so what is it that we actually understand is going on in the Christian life? What is the summum bonum, the highest good, that which matters the most and ought be shared? What is it that ought move us? Part of the problem is it's just so quotidian. It's so every day, which is beautiful, and praise God that it is. God does, in fact, care about your everydayness, your boredom, your, your work, your love, your anger, your fear. He cares about all of those things. None of that, not a hair is going to fall from your head, and many from mine have fallen by the wayside. And they fall <laughs> every time I take a shower, as a matter of fact. Uh, I see the remnants of history. Uh, oh, that was from when I was 47 and three quarters. Uh, and so... So it is important that we recognize what is most important and be able to be conversant in that so that we do the thing for which we were created, which is glorify the Lord our God, which he is most glorified when we speak of redemption and participate in reconciliation. Amen? So having said all that, 
as we step into this, the circumstance, uh, as we come into the latter portion of John 7 is there's a festival going on, a feast. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. This is important to the setting. Now, the Feast of Booths was, uh, according to Leviticus 23, something that they were ordered to celebrate on a yearly basis. It was a week-long event. And here's the great news. You got fed and you didn't have to work. But you also had to make these little booths and live in them in honor of, as this kind of living memorial to, um, when they were delivered from Egypt and they were in the wilderness and had to live in temporary housing. But what's important about the festival is that it reminds them that in every circumstance, the Lord their God is with them. Now, why was it that the Lord actually delivered them from Egypt? What was the stated purpose? To dwell with his people. So they could worship in spirit and truth and learn what it means to be in the presence of God. In fact, it was a foreshadowing of heaven. Remember, did they have to find their own food? Did they have to forage? No, what was, what was supplied? Manna, but something else that's pretty critical to life in the wilderness. Water. Part of the Feast of Tabernacles is on the seventh day, they go and they get uh, water from the pool of Shalom, or Siloam, and they pour it around the altar itself to remind them of the Lord's provision from the rock. You may remember, for those of you who have any sort of Bible reading plan that you're in, uh, Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 have the stories of the water coming from the rock. And in one story, Moses is to strike the rock, which is the story in Exodus, and the other story is to speak to the rock. More than likely are two different stories because the second one cost Moses the promised land because he doesn't do what God says. And in both cases, it's to, it's to show God's people that he is with them and that he loves them. So the producing of the water becomes this image, this motif that is critical to the people of God. In fact, it spans the whole of Scripture which is part of why Jesus is going to say on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, come all ye who thirst, I will fill you with living water. Out of your heart will flow living water. And so, uh, with that being the backdrop, let's step into the text and look at John 7, 37 through 39. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word. On the last day of the feast, being the Feast of Tabernacles or booze, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone who thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, there's several things that we um, need the Old Testament to help us with here. Already we've talked about the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles, but if you would, go ahead and flip to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12. We're going to read a, a couple things from Isaiah, so uh, we'll be there a couple of different times just as a heads up. But as you're turning to Isaiah 11, again, remember, the, these are things that they would have been versed in. They would have been raised in an understanding of the Old Testament in ways that Oftentimes, confessionally, we just don't have but would benefit from, right? We've talked here before about 
Catechism, which is not just the bare learning of a response to some questions, it's not head knowledge, it's knowledge that will hopefully be applied and stick to the ribs of our children so that they would be able to know, they would be raised in the way they should go so that if and when they depart from it, they would know the way back home, the real way, the Christ way. So having said that, listen at what Isaiah 11, 12 through 12, 6 says, and how this would have affected their hearing of what Christ was saying to them. Give your attention again to the reading of God's word. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel. Did you hear that? Who all is he gathering? One group of people or two? He will raise a banner for who? The nations. And he will gather who? Israel. And which covenant is this? The Abrahamic covenant. So here what we see is that God's heart has always been to reach the world with his glory, every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is not a new idea. And so he says, you're going to be gathered uh, from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with its scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals, and there will be a highway from Assyria, For the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel." So what he's saying there is you, there's a day coming, and he's pointing forward at this time through the prophet Isaiah to say there's a day coming when all of your enemies, all that is against you will be taken away, which we know, what's the greatest enemy of all? Death. Death in the power of sin, which is why the resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15 is victorious over those things. That's the greatest enemy of all. Our trouble is we keep seeing each other oftentimes as enemies when the greatest thing that divides us is sin and death. So what is the cure? Christ alone. Any enmity between us requires Christ alone, by faith alone, through God's grace alone, to make us something that we previously were not. 
so much of the distinctions between us are arbitrary. Things we have actually invented and made into things that keep us apart through our own sin. Right? And so, what Jesus is saying is, living water, come all ye who thirst. Come to the banquet. Come to what is truly going to feed you. Yes, you've been at this feast all week long. And yet, so many of you are still thirsty. Think about that for a second. Think about what he just said. He's like, hey, this has been great and all. But folks are still thirsty. This has been great and all, and, and, and you've eaten good. But you still have a problem. Just because you kept this feast doesn't solve your main problem. You lack the living water that is necessary for you to become what God intended for you to be, which is to participate in the priesthood of all nations, to participate in the redeeming of things, so that those who are called enemies on, on this uh, horizontal plane can be redeemed and become brothers and sisters in the vertical. Because what does Ephesians 2 tell us that we all are apart from Christ? We are all at enmity. We are all enemies of Christ himself. Without his redeeming work, and then the great but God phrase, but God in his grace and in his mercy has redeemed us so that none of us can boast. And too many of us actually arrogantly boast in ways that we just don't think about, right? How many ways do we, I don't really need all that. Just give me the simplest stuff. I don't, I don't need all the entangled story. I don't, I don't need to make the connections to the feast of booze. I don't need all that Isaiah stuff. Just give me the minimum. Instead of, no, let me take and eat of the feast. May it continue to flow in and through me and out to those around me. This isn't just about you. That's part of the problem is we think that it is. We think that this is just about us individually, and that we don't need much of this. In fact, what if what you needed was actually a, a word from the Scripture itself for someone you would meet later today? Is that even part of your rubric? Then maybe, no, you don't need it right now. But it will come in handy when you run into a person that you care about who needs that living water from that word, right? Right? Too often, we're, it's just, we're only thinking about our own thing. When what Christ is calling for is for us to become ambassadors of reconciliation, to join in the work that he has begun, that is guaranteed to be finished at his return, that is sealed in him. What a great gift that we're being invited into something we can't mess up. Now, why do I say that? Well, because it turns out I ain't perfect. And I mess up a lot. And I hold my tongue when I should speak, and I speak when I should hold my tongue. I pray only when it's convenient. I fail to pray when somebody I know needs it most, and I let it pass by. Because I got somewhere better to be. Or I got somewhere better to be so that I don't have to hear all of this. Just like you, I don't share with those who probably need to hear it the most because I'm more concerned with what they think of me than what they know of Christ. As if they don't already know because I'm a pastor. I ought to just step in and go, all right, let's do this. 
Let's just get this over. You know what I am. Let's, let's just get on in there. But I don't, just like you. And you may say, well, then what are you talking to us for? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit, because the word of God rings true even when we don't. And better that we would, instead of living there and thinking, well, that's fine. Let's just, let's just keep doing that. Why make it complex? But better that we would join in his work and see how good he is and witness miracle after miracle after miracle as he transforms our children's lives, as he transforms our neighbors' lives, our families' lives, the people we work with, as he radiates out in reconciliation from you, the epicenter of living water that you will become in him in the power of the Holy Spirit. Would that the Holy Spirit would work mightily in and through us for the glory of Christ. Would that what people would taste from our presence, which is what they would have tasted from God's presence, the living waters that, that are never ending. Remember the, in John 4, we didn't cover this, but if you know the story, it's the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember what he says to her about living water. And remember how she responds. It's fascinating. She goes and gets a seminary degree. No, she doesn't do that. She goes off into the wilderness and studies the Old Testament for three years. No, she doesn't do that either. What does she do? She runs and with not great confidence says, I think this guy's Jesus, you should go talk to him and listen to him for yourselves. All the while, the disciples are off getting a sandwich, kosher, no, mind, no less, and come back like, hey, you're not supposed to be talking to girls in the woods, man. What's wrong with you? And she's out evangelizing because the living water, she's just gotten a, a taste of it, just a little bit of it, and she couldn't contain it. And so what he's saying to them here is all of these festivals and all of these things that you do, they won't satisfy you. All of your religious activity is not going to be what satisfies you. It helps. It helps you to see. It is the word made visible. Do not get me wrong. We do this as well when we do the Lord's Supper and baptism. That's the word made visible. We have the same type of things to remind us of the story. But those things don't save us, and those things don't make us something that we're not unless the Spirit is at work in us, in and through Christ. What those things can do is supplement what he has already done and accomplished on our behalf. And so he's calling for them to have their spiritual thirst quenched. And what's amazing is how the book of Revelation picks up this same language in Revelation 7, 21, and 22. There's all this talk of water for those who thirst to come and be satisfied and that from under the throne flows this river which will give life to all. And there's that tree that's gonna supply for every nation the peace that it needs. At long last, we will be able to dwell with God forever without any encumbrance, and amen. And so there's so much in what he's saying here that he's saying to them, I want you to be filled with the Spirit. But it's interesting, because it said it hadn't happened yet. Why? What does the text tell us? Well, because he's not yet been glorified. His work is not finished, 
See, the Holy Spirit ultimately applies the finished work of Christ. Now you may say, hold on a second. I know there's some passages in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit gets on people and they do some prophesying and they, they dance and all kind of crazy stuff. And that's true. Is that the same thing, though, as being filled with the Spirit so that living waters flow out of you from now to eternity because you are now made an ambassador of reconciliation? No, do remember the Spirit departs from Saul. So what we're talking about is not, in fact, that's why I would say those ultimately are much lesser miracles than the full redemption of a heart that overflows with the living water of the Holy Spirit in Christ. Right? To be able to do something, some kind of one-off, really magical, amazing thing, that's great. But it is not. It is far less than a redeemed, submitted heart to Christ. Uh, 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 an enemy that becomes a brother or sister in Christ. And so let's turn back to uh, Isaiah for a second. I want you to hear a couple of passages that would have been important to them in understanding the connection between water and the Spirit. And in fact, this should also be cueing your mind back to the earlier sermons where Jesus talks to Nicodemus and says, unless you're born of water and Spirit. So he was saying the same thing. It wasn't two different events. It was one event, but he was using an image they would have understood. Isaiah 44, 1 through 8 says this. Give your attention again to the reading of God's word. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offering and my blessing upon your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed my ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know, not any. You, here's some interesting language there. How many of you heard the echo of Revelation? I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. And the rock, by the way, gets interpreted by Paul as Jesus. The rock in the wilderness, in 1 Corinthians 10, if my memory serves me. And it is that rock out of which living water flows. And so God is basically saying, I am that rock. Which is what he said to Moses when he said, speak to the rock. Well, strike it the first time, speak to it the second time. Which is why he was a little unhappy when Moses struck it twice the second time, just to make a point, because he was angry. And so, uh, also if you would flip to Isaiah 58, uh, a critical text. And here, what is the purpose? What is the point of having this living water? This is Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 12. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Let me pause for just a second. 
Do you understand this? What, he, what he's just said there is all religious activity ought to result in some of these things. I don't, he has no interest in things that are for show. He has no interest in a people checking off or commodifying their relationship to him. What he is very interested in is your redemption. And what he's very interested in is the redemption of the people around you. Praise God. One of the reasons why he's so patient, 2 Peter 3, why he tarries, he wants the family to grow larger and larger. That's incomprehensible to us. His grace, his mercy. He goes on, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. You want to see God? Go to where God does what he does best, which is always among the broken. And by the way, there are broken folks among the rich. They need Jesus too. There are broken folks among the middle class. They need Jesus too. There are broken folks among the lower class, the immigrant, the illegal, the this, the that, the other. I don't care the category. All of us, Romans 3, have the same exact problem, do we not? And therefore, all of us have the same exact potential cure. And he goes on, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness. Did you hear that? What does disunity do to the work of the Holy Spirit in a given group of people? What does it do according to this? Squelches it. You may say, well, I thought the Holy Spirit was better than that. No, he just don't suffer fools very well. He's going to work where it is going to glorify God to work among a people that are at odds with one another. See, this is why we can't take unity lightly. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I want to be very clear here. What I'm not saying is that you can't ever challenge anything that we as leaders say. In fact, that is, that is the worst. If you want to squelch the Holy Spirit, that is the fastest way to do it, I think. And what, what should be is that we should be at a place who we are in Christ to be able to iron sharpen iron, which requires what? The clanking of iron, which makes sparks fly which sometimes reshapes the swords that slam together. Something that we should not be afraid of doing if what we're trying to get to ultimately is to better glorify and lift up the name of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. He goes on. If you pour yourself out, but, uh, and take away the yoke from your midst, pointing a finger, speaking of weakness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and listen. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. 
You shall raise up the foundation of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. Now, for those of you who wonder, wait a minute now, did he just say that you can only experience God if you do some nice things to poor people? No. Because you got to remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the religious. He's talking to folks who deem themselves in. These would have been the Old Testament Christians of a sort. So what he's saying to them is, is if you are already a son or daughter, the way in which you are going to best experience the presence of God is go where he is at work. And he is always at work among those who need him the most. Always. And that again can be, and don't let this blind you, just because someone has money doesn't mean they're not lonely, now does it? Just because someone has everything their heart could possibly desire does not mean they're satisfied, does it? And it doesn't mean they know Jesus. And just because someone is poor doesn't mean that they've done something wrong to deserve their poverty. Not always. And even if they have, what must be lifted, what must they see? the glory of God and the person and work of Christ so that they would recognize him as great provider. And so this text is telling us in the Old Testament shadows what Jesus is saying to us in the New Testament. He's essentially saying there is a way in which you can be satisfied between the now and the not yet. But it's going to require him to finish what he started, which means he's going to have to die on a cross. He's going to have to rise from the dead. He's going to need to ascend to the right hand of the Father so then he can send the Holy Spirit to pour it out upon us. Joel 2 talks about this. Acts 1 will actually get to Joel later this year. But this is something that's been known. It's known in the Old Testament. This is a new idea from Jesus. God told them this was coming. And what Jesus is standing up and crying out is, it's here. Come and partake. Now he sets up the banks of the river, right? He's, he's essentially saying, look, there's a way in which you are dining in the grave. You, in your sin, will die. A message we all love, right? And then on the other side, he's saying now, but there's a banquet at which you can eat and never be fully satisfied because it's so good. It's so wonderful. I'm inviting you into the place where death is swallowed up by life. What a great image. Death swallowed up, eaten up by life. And what do we do? Who are you to decide the banks of the river to tell me who I am and who I could be? I'll decide that, thank you very much. Not I will follow you, but how about you follow me, Jesus? And rubber stamp what I choose to do. Lest the greatest miracle of all occurs, that is a banquet in the grave. And so here, listen to what R.C. Sproul says about this portion of text. With the Spirit's coming, that which Martin Luther called the priesthood of all believers becomes a reality. So, just real quick, the priesthood of all believers is a reformed doctrine that states that everybody has a gift. Oh, by the way, it's not just reformed doctrine, it's 1 Corinthians 12, which is where all the Holy Spirit stuff kind of gets stirred up for us. 
But we forget that everybody has a contribution and nobody is the whole body by themselves. You can't be. In fact, we just had this conversation, our Thursday morning group, as we're going through Calvin's book. I asked them a question. I said, um, hey, how, how, how many of y'all uh, feel like that your presence on Sunday morning is as important as mine? And, and honestly, and it's fair, they all said, none of us. Was that biblical? No. Now, I will be held to double judgment for whether or not I showed up and did what I was called to do. In fact, it may be more dangerous for me to show up some mornings than others. However, we have this mindset that you're not that your gift, your, your willingness to be here. Now, I'm not saying that you prove your salvation by attending church on a regular basis. I think it's a good idea. In fact, I think it's a biblical idea. I think it's good for your soul. I think it, it matters. But it's both the using of your gift in church and out of church. But usually, if you're not much involved in Sunday worship, chances are you're not rocking it out there in the world in your spheres of influence. And so a low view of yourself, your gifting, and the spirit in you is crippling. It just is. So here's what I am saying. When you are here, which I know people, you can't be here every time. So don't, please don't go away saying, Cameron, so we've got to be there every time. That's not what I said. As often as you can, as much as you can, as much as you can be at peace with all, do that, right? So when you're here, though, I would much, I don't, I'm, not, I'm less worried about your view of attendance than I am your view of when you attend. You understand? And how you view what it is you're doing here and the gifts that you have to offer everyone around you. Now, we, you can't get to everybody. We, we talked about on Sunday mornings, I usually uh, can have a, 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 a meaningful conversation with about three or four people if I'm real intentional. That's not much, because there's about 150, 160 y'all in here. And I don't discount children from that as well. Because I think it's just as important that I have interactions with the children of the church uh, that are meaningful as you adults. But I, I, can't, I can't get to everybody. And we've admitted, kind of, that everybody in the room needs prayer. So if the only thing you did was just accost the person next to you when the service ends and say, hey, let me pray for you because Cameron's crazy and he might leave us alone if he sees us praying. That wouldn't be a bad thing, actually. That's not how we're thinking. We're thinking, what do you t let's be honest, what do we think? When's he going to end? We hadn't even hit the second part yet. And we all know he's just getting warmed up. I wonder if we're going to get out of here in time to beat the Baptist to Piccadilly. Um, whatever it is we have going on, the tyranny of the urgent. And I un listen, I understand. I, I was once not a pastor who had young children who had to get in and out of church just like you do. I'm not, I'm not ignorant to your plight. I understand there's nap times. And I understand that we drive it long so kids are hungry. I understand. I do. Not, not as much as you may like, but I do understand. But, but there's always room for just, just changing your mindset and seeing what the Lord might reveal to you. 
about your presence here and its importance when you're here to use the gift that you've been given, whether it's encouragement or prayer or challenge. I'll take that. Or any of the things that we may have to change who we are to show the priesthood of all believers, that we actually believe that's true and that we actually believe that the Spirit has actually filled us because Christ said it was so. Back to R.C. Sproul's quote, and I'll try not to divert. Every member of the community of faith was endowed by the Holy Spirit, empowered from on high to participate in the ministry of Christ's kingdom. If you are a Christian, you have received the Holy Spirit. You are an anointed person, fit to be used of God for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. Do you believe that? Now, what helps you tap into the rivers of living water that flow from your heart in the power of the Holy Spirit in union with Christ? That's a bit of a trick question, actually, because you don't actually decide. What decides is not your feelings and response, but whether or not it actually results in Christ being exalted, and not just because you say so. Right? Like I was so hungry yesterday at Sam's. I was with a friend of mine, and he's, he's, he's in ketosis, and so he doesn't ever think he needs to eat, and I'm not, obviously, and it's ridiculous. And, and I, I was going to buy one of those $1.50 hot dogs and a drink, but the line was biblical and out the door, and, and, uh, and this, I, I got wind. I saw chicken wings, people coming by eating chicken wings, and I accosted this one guy, and I, I think he called the cops on me. I was like, where'd you get those chicken wings? And so there was one left. <laughs> Biggest drumette I've ever seen in my life. Right? Man, I went for it. It was like rivers of living water. <laughs> no, it was just a chicken wing that was really good and helped me survive the next hour and a half uh, <laughs> of whatever we were doing. So I'm saying that to say is, yes, it was an emotional experience, me and this chicken wing and Sam's. It really was. Uh, I'm just, I don't think it was spiritual. Uh, all things are spiritual, but I don't think it falls in the category. I'm glad the Lord provided. Uh, I just, I'm just not going to call it manna from heaven. So you, my point is this, is that just because we call something good, it still has to pass the test of Scripture itself and ultimately whether or not Christ was exalted, which means your opinion alone is insufficient. My opinion alone is insufficient. Which is why we are not ultimately the authority. You can push back, but when you do, it should have scriptural basis. So, what helps you tap into this river of living water? And even more important, this is a better question, I think. How have others benefited from this water flowing from you? Because that is the purpose. The purpose is not that you would have living water. And people would say, man, this dude is a fountain of living waterness. He is a well-watered garden. He's a spring. He doesn't matter. She doesn't matter. Christ matters. Which makes us actually matter. But not individually. So how has the fact that you have the Holy Spirit in you been of any benefit to anybody around you and if you can't come up with something, don't despair. But pray that the Lord would show you and guide you and go forward because you are still alive. Now let's turn back to the text. 
verses 40 through 52 and see the result of Christ offering this wonderful springs of living water. How do they respond? Much like we do, much like they did last week when invited to the banquet. We question his identity and we limit God's sovereignty. If you again, give your attention to the reading of God's word. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So think about this for a second. Here, Christ is saying, come and be thoroughly fed. Have your thirst quenched. Rivers of living water flowing from you. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? A division breaks out instead of unity, which he's actually going to pray for in John 17. They are divided on who he is. And even more importantly, they're divided on the sovereignty of God. Notice, again, they, the pendulum just keeps swinging. Is he the prophet? Is he Moses? Is he Moses reincarnated? Right? Or is he the Christ, which means he's the Davidic king? And then they're like, no, 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 he's from Galilee. The Davidic king, according to Micah 5, has to come from Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born, by the way? Turns out he's born in Bethlehem. Now he's raised a good bit in Galilee. They were just wrong in the Ambrose Bierce positive sense. They were wrong at the top of their lungs. But they were dead set they were right. They took a hot read of the situation, which, by the way, we often do, don't we? I'm notorious for this. Take a hot read on a situation. Think you know. Come out hot about it. Just turns out you were just wrong loud. These guys are wrong loud. They even challenged Nicodemus. This is part, one of the things that we have not highlighted, but John is, is gifted at, is irony. And he says, they ask him, are you from Galilee too? And notice what they say about the crowd of people for whom Jesus has come to die. They are in fact so stupid and so damned. If they think that what he's saying is worth listening to, but of course, they had a low view of the mob anyway, didn't they? They only used them to break the law. They themselves had condemned them to be damned themselves. They weren't missional to this crowd at all, but were quick to speak against them because they failed to live up to the things that they thought were most important. So this argument that is going on, notice who's the only person who speaks any level of wisdom at all. It's this guy, Nicodemus. You say, well, hang, hang on a second. Doesn't the law say here there's a process here? Shouldn't we not break the law to call him a lawbreaker? 
And what do they say? They resort, essentially, to what many online trolls resort to, just throwing out emotive kind of things. Oh, well, you must be from Galilee. <laughs> Defeated. No, <laughs> you got your facts wrong. But nobody cares about the facts. Nobody cares about what's true here. Do you understand? They've already decided what it is they want, and they want power. Now, you got to be careful because you do too. You want power over your own heart and mind. You want God to bend to your will, not you to his. You want God to follow you, not you follow him. You want God to say that what you're doing is good instead of recognizing that what he is doing is good even when it hurts. And so... The thing that ought to have unified them and drawn them to the feast of all feasts was driving them out. Does that mean Jesus has a PR problem? Doesn't he need me to come along and make it easier for people to get to him? To take away some of the hard parts, the suffering, the judgment, the justice, the loss? No. This is not at all what he needs. In fact, he'll take care of that himself. We are called to scatter and water. He will take care of the increase. And that increase is always greater than anything we could ever accomplish ourselves. That's what I think we don't buy. We don't believe that what he is offering is still yet greater than what we could come up with. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this. He says, but while we value religious knowledge, we must take care that we do not overvalue it. We must not think it enough to know the facts and doctrines of our faith unless our hearts and lives thoroughly influenced by what we know. The very devils know the creed intellectually and believe and tremble, but remain devils still, James 2.19. It is quite possible to be familiar with the letter of Scripture and to be able to quote text appropriately and reason about the theory of Christianity and yet to remain dead in trespasses and sins. Like many of the generation to which our Lord preached, we may know the Bible well and yet remain faithless and unconverted. Heart knowledge, we must remember, is the one thing needful. What J.C. Ryle is saying there is there must be a transformation of the heart of which you are not in control. That drives us crazy. There must be a transformation of the heart that truly is miraculous from stone to flesh. Old Testament imagery. It's the circumcision of the heart, not the body. It's the baptism of the soul inside and out, not just the external washing of the cup. And so what we have to recognize is that the Holy Spirit's single greatest concern is, is your redemption and living out to the glory of God as ambassadors of reconciliation, the gifts that he grants to you. Not that we would fight and be divided over every single thing. Now you may say, well then why, why don't we let more be? Well, but we have to be biblical. There are banks to this river after all. But the more important question is, why is it that when Jesus says, come and drink so deeply of so much, 
Are we so reticent to come? Man, I wish we were having communion today. But we're not. And I can't make it happen. Because if I could, that'd be a miracle and that'd be, y'all talk about it for too long. But what I will say is this, is what, what, what is it that causes you to question the identity of the true Christ? If you're honest, y'all do it. I do it. I do it. I don't know how you look long at it and not question. Now, if you don't, amen. But I do, and so I want everybody to be just like me. And maybe it troubles you that I do. But what I can say is this, is I've questioned an awful lot, and I keep coming back to the same powerful truth. And I want to be at that feast. And I am feasting now. And I have rivers of living water flowing through me that weren't there before Christ poured his Holy Spirit out on me. And I was baptized in the Holy Spirit in the truest sense of the biblical term. And then what causes you to seek to limit God's sovereignty and who and where he works? Are you basically saying, ain't nothing good can come from Galilee, Nazareth? Ain't nobody good can rise from that people group. Ain't nobody good could be a woman. Ain't nobody good could be a child. Ain't nobody good could be a this or a that or a whatever. How can God work in those places? Like your family, like your home, like your bedroom, like your job, like your neighborhood, like your car when nobody's there but him. He is your co-pilot after all. I've seen on a bumper sticker. So what do we learn from John 7, 37 through 52? We learn that Jesus will satisfy our thirst with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that will overflow from us for the benefit of others who struggle with his identity and God's sovereignty. You are saved not just for yourselves. You are empowered with the Holy Spirit not just for yourself. You're given that to be a blessing to those around you because we're all struggling with the same things. None of us, after that sermon last week, be honest. You're like, man, Cameron just went crazy on predestination. Well, I, yeah, but that's John 6. If you have questions about that, by the way, if you're wrestling with some things, I'm not saying I have the ultimate answers because there's a whole bunch of mystery in that. There's a whole bunch of things it doesn't answer, but let's be a people who do better than what the disciples did and say, this is too hard, I can't hear this nonsense. If you want to wrestle with it, let's, let's get together and talk, get the elders. If you have a small group that's really like, we all are wrestling with this, we'd be happy to come and in humility discuss it with you and point to the scriptures where we know what we have seen and tasted and know that is good. And we are willing to pray in the mystery with you with the things we don't know and tell you what we don't know. But what is most important is that we've been given this so we could give it away, so that we could serve other people, so that we could be hospitable, so that we could be missional, so that we could go, not just stay. So remember the point of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ always. That's the ultimate test. And if you're in Christ, you are filled with him. What a beautiful connection to the Feast of Tabernacles that though they dwelt in booths in the wilderness. Christ, the Spirit, and God the Father dwell in us in this present wilderness until Christ returns. So that death would at long last be swallowed up by life.
Not that we would lose our tent entirely, but we'd get a much better one in the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus stands up and he cries out in the midst of our religious ceremony. And he says, come all ye who thirst. And so if there's anyone here this morning who is thirsty, who longs for being filled with the Holy Spirit because of being united with Christ through their repentance of sin and acceptance of him as Savior through your grace by their faith, in the power of the effectual call of the Holy Spirit, then I pray they would have the courage to come and have us pray for them and begin that journey with them. God, if there's those who feel like they are, have gone dry in their spirituality, they know you but can't taste of the water that the Spirit supplies, not because the water's not there, but because something is covering their experience of that water. I, I pray, too, that they would have the courage to come and say, pray for us. Pray for me. Pray that our church would be a place where living water is tasted and seen and good and there are springs of living water everywhere and we become known as repairs of the streets to dwell in, repairs of the breach, the greatest of all between God and his people. God, would you fill us with your spirit in such a way that we would be refreshing to one another that we would be refreshing to those who visit with us, refreshing to those who struggle. God, would your word feed us? Would we have been fed here this morning? Send us out filled and overflowing. In Christ's name, amen.